Good evening, great people. How are you doing? It is great to see all of you, especially those of you who are new here this evening. Thank you so much for making us a part of your Sunday and really hope and trust that you feel at home. Um, uh, not because uh, of the visitors, but you, you have come at a right time if you are a guest, or maybe the wrong time. But we are speaking today on evil. Why evil? <laughs> uh, and on the cor- in the course of the last week and a half, as I've been thinking and planning this sermon, I have been challenged, excited, happy, scared, and repentant. I- I've apologized so many times that I'm really considering changing my last name to a greasy. Um, <laughs> trying to figure out when I'm going to do that, but... Yeah, I'm inquiring of the Lord about that. Um, When I was about six, seven years old, uh, something happened that I've never forgotten till this day. It was probably the first time in my life where I can remember seeing and experience something that I would call evil. My parents had gone away and, you know... um, I was watching TV, and I wanted to watch a specific show. Now, we used to have the VCRs, you know, with the cassette, right? And then you could dub over the cassette, right? You could, you could uh, record whatever, CCTV. Now, my, my sister and I used to love the second most holy thing, outside gospel, which is R&B. And, and, and so she had recorded some songs, and I was just, man, I would love to watch some of these music videos. So I put this tape in expecting to see a bunch of music videos, but instead, there was a man in a room, there was a black man in a room, and he was being interrogated. I should have stopped the tape, but I didn't. I was glued to the screen. I didn't know who the man was, but later I came to find out that it was a guy by the name of Steve Biko. He was being tortured, and after they tortured him, they tied him to, the, to a car, and they dragged his body across the road, lifeless body the road. I have never forgotten that image till this day. Never. It comes up, pops up every now and again, decades later, and I can still see what that image was like. There's something innately wrong with the world. And, and the reality is that your heart knows it, and what your heart actually longs for is not right things to happen. What your heart actually longs for is the perfection of God. Your heart was created to be with Him. So when evil happens, it reminds you that there's something missing that can only be fulfilled by Him. Atheists have a tough job. They not only have to prove why and how evil exists, they need to try and prove how goodness exists without the existence of God. How moral good, if if you love justice, you can't love justice without believing in absolute truth. You have to believe that there is a line, there's a standard in which all things receive, they know. But if if you don't believe in moral good, you will struggle to figure out evil. How do you explain moral good without the existence of a, of, a, of, a, of a good God giving moral good to the world? So today, 
we are going to look at evil, and I want us to approach it from three different spaces. One, the ugly truth about evil. Two, the beautiful reality in the midst of evil. And three, the undeniable mystery of evil. Three things. Have your Bibles. Turn with me to Genesis 3, 1 through to 13. Would you help me just out of reverence for the word? Would you mind standing with me as I read the word? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the, tree in the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves linen cloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you? That you were naked. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Father, you you told me today what you were going to do and I'm asking that you do it. Lord, I pray that you would bind up the brokenhearted. Lord, I pray that you would heal our hearts and set free those who are captive. I pray that you would release favor on your people and take vengeance on the enemy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. I want to talk about the ugly truth about evil. Um, When you talk about evil, you cannot start talking about evil from the place of evil. In order for you to start talking about evil, you need to start at the foundation. The foundation is goodness. Because evil in and of itself is not a thing. Evil in and of itself is a parasite to good, a cancer to good. Evil cannot exist outside the backdrop of goodness. Evil, therefore, is anything that classifies itself as non-good. So when, we, when we're thinking of the world, part of the reality that we're facing is this, is that how can a good God make a good creation 
put them in good condition, give them a good nature, and yet they make bad decisions. How is that possible? And, and here's what we need to understand. Our nature, our reality is different to that of animals. Animals, you take a vulture, you put a vulture in a room, and you put carrots and meat in front of a vulture, it's going to go for the meat. You take a rabbit, put it in the same room, it's going to go for the carrot. Why? Because it can only do what its nature allows it to do. It has limited will. Whilst for us, because the primal, eth- uh, the, the, the primal ethic of life is love, God gives us free will. Though we are good, given a good nature, put in, in the presence of a good God, we are given a free will so that we might choose love. That we, we, we are not limited based on our nature. God wants both us and the angels to choose to love him. The problem or the beauty with the choice to love him means we can also not love him. Herein lies the problem. You have Lucifer standing before the king of kings as the light bearer. That's what the word Lucifer means. And he is bringing forth worship to the king. He's bringing forth worship to God. How does he fall? How does he fall? How can you be so good in such a good condition, in in the presence of such a good God and make a bad decision? We find it in Ezekiel 28. Here it is, Ezekiel 28 from verse 12. God is speaking to a king. This king is, is a bad king, cruel king, and he thinks that he is God to the people. And so God comes to him and he says the following, listen, if I, can cuss, if, I can, if I can cast out Satan, what makes you think I won't cast you out? Satan was nothing for me to cast him out. You will be nothing for me either. And he tells him about Lucifer. Here's what he says about Lucifer. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden and the garden of, you were in Eden, the garden of God, verse 14. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. So what's happening? God is a good God. He creates good angels, good people. He creates a great earth. He creates a good heavens. What happens? Because evil doesn't exist in the beginning with God, and God clearly doesn't create evil. So what happens? Here it is. Lucifer standing before the throne of God, bringing worship unto him. While he's doing that, for whatever reason, he pauses for a moment. And he looks at himself, and he sees how beautiful he is. He sees how glorious God made him. And he thinks to himself in a split second, Lord, man, I should be worshipped. 
Look how glorious I am. Look at the splendor I am endowed with. I should be worshipped. As he's in the process of thinking what he wants to think, God looks at him and he says, I just found in you wickedness. And in the moment of God finding that wickedness, he casts him out into the earth. And the Bible says he becomes the prince of the air. It's that place that we call second heaven. He's, he's trying to get into the earth, trying to get authority, but he can't. Why? Because authority has been given to us. But he can't get in. He, he, so he, he becomes the prince of the air in this place called second heaven. When you read the book of Daniel, you realize that there's a moment where Daniel prays. His prayers answered immediately, but he gets stuck in the second heaven, until the archangel Michael comes and he says, get out of the way, let this prayer happen, because I'm more powerful even in my own being than you. You move out of the way. Let this prayer happen. And all of a sudden we realize Satan is desperate to break that which God made. We find him in the form of a serpent in the garden. Adam and Eve created in the image of God, now have good and evil present, and they have free will, and they are loving God until Satan looks at Eve and tempts her with the exact same thing that he wants. You know you want to be like God. You know you do. Man, he's, he's withholding from you. If you just eat of this purple, everything will be all right. It must have been a popo. Popo just sounds sinful. <laughs> Mpo, could you turn me down, please? I'm going to shout today. So just turn me down a bit. He says, you eat of this fruit. You, you will be like God. You won't need to trust him. You can trust yourself. Just eat. Just take it. She thinks about it. Begins to talk to a serpent. Let me help you. Stop talking to the devil. Stop, stop reasoning with your lies. You have to understand when God created Lucifer, he gave them wisdom. When Lucifer fell, he didn't take the wisdom away. It says that wisdom became corrupt. You are not smart enough to outsmart him. The only way you can stand before him is by the blood of Christ and the word of his testimony. You cannot outsmart him. Negro Spiritual says this is a song they used to sing in America that says, don't let the devil ride. Because if you let him ride, he will take your car. If you let him take your car, he will take you too far. This is the reality of playing around with the line. Don't do it. Don't let him hitchhike his way into your life. Adam and Eve somehow thought if they just bite of this, maybe they'll be okay. It's just a sin that will, will, will stay there. What stays in Vegas, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Here's the problem. What happened in the garden is in your home today. It's in your mind. It's in your heart. It's in your business. It's in your government. It's in the lusts that you have inside your heart. What, what happened in the garden is currently in your house. And until you realize that somehow God has created the world, that your small obedience will last generations, you won't understand that when you say no, it has an impact on the people around you. Oh, no. If it, I can do it, no one will see what will the, the problem is, they might not see, but generations will inherit, inherit what you do. Make no doubt about it. Make no doubt about it. 
eat of the fruit, and now you have a fallen world. You have a fallen people. You, we had supernatural evil breaking out with Lucifer, one. Then we had moral evil breaking out when, when Adam and Eve sinned. How on earth does natural evil come into play? How do uh, tsunamis and earthquakes come into play? Here's how. When God created man, he took the sand of the earth, breathed life into the sand. In that moment, man became the representative of the earth. When man fell, the earth broke. Why? Because they, they, they were the ones who were representing the soil. The earth broke. Oh, they didn't realize the impact of a moment. And it broke. The disaster that was in them now had to play out in the, in the, in the earth in which they were representing. Men who are leading households rise up. Because there are things that you allow to happen in your life that you have no idea that because you have been given the authority to be the head of the household, it impacts your family. Rise up. Be the first to pray. Be the one to call that prayer meeting. You stand up and you weep and you repent before God because what you do is so critical, so critical, so vital. Fallen world, fallen people, great God. What now? What do we do now? Here's what happened when, he, when they ate of that tree, when they ate of that fruit. Here's the reality of what led to all devastations that we currently know. In that moment when they ate of that tree, they ultimately said to God, Lord, we don't want to trust you to define for us that which is good, that which is evil. We want to define for ourselves from now on that which is good, that which is evil. Right now, you and I are living in the consequences of our definitions. We are. Listen to the language of your culture and you will know what we have said yes to. And you will realize the depravity in our society. They take God out of the picture. Now they're the ones who get to define that which is good and evil. In his book, Henry Beard, a book called the Official, the, the Official Politically Correct Dictionary and Handbook, most of this is research. A little bit of it is tongue-in-cheek. This is not a Christian guy who wrote the book. But he's writing the book to help you and I change our language so that we don't offend one another. So here's what he says. No, no, no. Don't call people immoral or promiscuous. They're just sexually active. Oh, no. Don't call people dis dishonest. They are just ethically disoriented, disoriented or differently dis dishonest. Don't call people drug addicts. They're just, pharmacological, they're, they're just pharmacologically different than you. Oh, are you drunk? No, I'm not drunk. I'm just chemically inconvenienced or sobriety deprived. Oh, did you just steal my phone? No, I didn't. I just went into your bag and did some non-traditional shopping. Are you a serial killer? No, not at all. Don't you dare call me a murderer because all I am is just socially misaligned. That's all I am. We took it upon ourselves. Lord, we don't trust you. We trust ourselves. We will define that which is good. We will define that which is evil. Until you walk your way to Isaiah 5, verse 20 to 21, and you come into contact with God saying the following, Woe to those who call evil good 
and good, evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. But God in his goodness does something amazing. He reenacts the whole garden of Eden. And for the last time, upon a tree, in the cross, we find the presence of evil and good stuck once more on a tree. This time, all the sin of the world has been placed on Christ, and yet God sending his son has elevated him. And he is the, 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 the picture of all goodness to the world. But this time, if we would eat of this tree, we will live if we would partake of this tree, our lives would change. Everything about us would be, will be different. We, we, when we eat of this tree, we're ultimately saying, Lord, you are Lord of our lives. We give it back to you. You define for us that which is good and evil. We, we don't want to define it for ourselves anymore. When we eat of this tree, everything changes. Through sin, uh, through one man, sin came into the world. But through the cross, through the second tree, righteousness, grace, and mercy has come into the world. The whole world is divided between these two trees. In this room, there are only two kinds of people. Those who eat, those who eat of the first tree and those who eat of the second. Where are you, Adam? Where are you today? What tree are you feasting on? Point number two. The beautiful reality, the beautiful reality in the midst of evil. Have you ever read this book, especially the Old Testament, and thought to yourself, God is scary, crazy, weird, and super weird. If you read it and that's what you thought, you probably read it right. God is God. We, we've tried so hard to make him nice for our friends. And God doesn't want to be nice. God isn't nice. God is God. God is God. God is God. God, God is so powerful. He, he doesn't need you to make him nice so that people will like him. He's God. He, he doesn't want to be liked. He wants people to repent. He, he's not trying to fit into your friend's culture. Your friend's idea of him. God is God. God is God. He is powerful. His, his majesty, his power is so much that when he's kind to you, you say, Lord, I'm sorry. His power is so much that when he's compassionate, he heals your body, casts out demons. God is God. He's not trying to be nice. He's never hidden the fact that he will kill you today if he wants to. He's never hidden that. And I know that bothers you, and that's exactly why I'm saying it. Because if you know that he is powerful, you will stop asking the question, Lord, if you're powerful, why is there so much evil in the world? Instead, you will ask the question, Lord, if you're so powerful, so holy, and you know my evil, why am I still alive? I should be dead today. I shouldn't be allowed to breathe. Why, why am I alive? If you're so holy... If you're so powerful, why don't you take me out while I'm sleeping, Lord? Why do you keep me breathing, stealing your air? Why is it you should take me out? Because you're too powerful. I, I, can't, I can't understand your power. You, you're too majestic for me. But, but the moment we limit his power, we become insecure in the face of evil. 
because he has become small and evil has become great. We, we've allowed him in our eyes. Revi Zacharias puts it like this. He, he says, listen, God created man and man returned the favor by creating God. The God you have created is not big enough for the evil in the world. He's not. He doesn't want to be nice. In the book of Genesis, when the people in the generation of Noah were wicked beyond what you can think or imagine, God released the flood, killed the whole world. You and I think that's evil, but the Bible says his judgments are good. What he did was good. It is hard to understand. It is hard to get, but God cannot judge badly. Whatever he does is good. Kids drowning, moms and dads drowning, and we look, and yet somehow we think it's okay to, to make God nice for the world so they would like me. God, God, God never asked to be like, he, he never hid what he can do. If I was God, I wouldn't write most of this stuff in this book. I would try and make sure that you, you know how nice I am so you can. But God says, listen, I will take you out. The only reason I won't take you out is because of mercy. And mercy in and of itself is a restraining of evil. It's God saying you deserve more than what you currently have, but I hold it together. I keep it from you. I keep it from you. So you're when David had it right when he says, Lord, every day when I wake up, your mercies are new every day. I know today I deserve something different than what you're giving me. Every day your mercies are new. Every day you restrain evil from me. You bless me. Hear me. Jesus faced evil. He did. And we learn from Jesus how to face evil, how to live in dark times. Matthew 26, Jesus is speaking to one of his boys who just took out a knife and chopped off the ear of the high priest. High priest was coming in and, and, and just like the modern day church, Jesus' boy tried to protect Jesus. Came in with a knife, chopped him off. Lord, look at me, I'm protecting you until Jesus speaks to him. You put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will, he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should, I, should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? I don't need you to protect me. I'm good. All I need to do, send a word, legions of angels that you cannot comprehend how powerful they are will come and... If, Take me out of this place in a heartbeat. But, but I can't do that because there's something greater right now that's happening that you don't understand. Here's what we learn from Jesus. One is that God restrains, at times, God restrains his power to fulfill his purpose. You have to understand this. There are times where God will, his, will restrain his power so that he can fulfill his purpose. Secondly, a high view of God's majesty will build in you the confidence you need to overcome the evil you're facing and the endurance you need to break through the presence of evil. It's this high view of God that you need. A high view of God's majesty, thirdly, doesn't make the pain any easier to deal with. 
It doesn't. We, we know this because a chapter or two before this, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. He, he's feeling all the pain of, of evil. He's got blood coming out from his paws. And he says, Lord, if you would, man, please take this away from me. He's feeling the agony, the pain of evil. But he says, Lord, but not my will, but your will. Not, not, not my desire, but your purpose. But man, I'm feeling it, Lord. And lastly, God punishes evil. He punishes it. He, he punishes it, firstly, through you and I. That he, he's released the church with the kingdom of God so that we can cast out demons, heal the sick, and preach the gospel. These, according to the kingdom, are acts of war. We are not trying to play niceties with people. We are trying to bring forth the kingdom in violence if we have to, to allow the gospel that we preach, the lives we live, that the people we pray for to be delivered from the works of the evil one. And so when we preach the gospel, it is an act of war upon everything that the enemy has done in our society. The, the, the mere fact that we don't preach shows that we are decapitated warriors sitting at home, hoping that good will come when the power of good lies in what you have, in what you have. He's given you the tools to, to take goodness and, and overcome evil. Go, therefore. is not just a, hey, as a church, let's do something nice together. It is a call to the warriors. Stand where you are. Grab a hold of what you have. Put on the armor of God, Ephesians 6, and go to battle do what I've called you to do. Go and punish evil. Punish it. God punishes evil also in a way that we sometimes don't fully know or fully get. I'm going to read something to you. It's going to be hard for some of you, but you're going to be okay. <laughs> in Isaiah 10, God is dealing with the nation of Israel. They have disobeyed him more than what you can even think or imagine. He's extended mercy upon them so much, and they keep on being wicked before him. And God <coughs> sees this nation of Assyria led by a king, a vile king, who has nothing but evil and cruelty in him. All this king wants to do is annihilate all the nations so that he will be the king of kings. He's got evil burning inside of him. And the Israelites keep repeatedly disobeying God, and God is extending mercy. And God does something that might be hard to understand. Here's what he says. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. In other words, I'm going to use Assyria to discipline you. I'm going to use them. I didn't put the evil in them. I am not sending them to you, but I'm going to release them to do what they want to do. Because you don't understand that I've been restraining them. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like a mile on the streets. But he does not understand. He does, he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. In other words, the king of Assyria just thinks, look at me. I'm so strong and mighty. He doesn't understand that he is about to fulfill the purpose of God. 
he doesn't get it. But it is in his heart to destroy. God didn't put it in there. It's already in him. God has been restraining him from touching his people. And to cut the nations off, not a few. For he says, and he, he, this king is now being boastful and, 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 and pompous and all the things that he does. Next slide. Verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work, work on Mount Zion, Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So here's what's happening. God has warned his people. They're not listening. He loves them. And he, 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 they don't understand that he's restraining the king of Assyria like he's restraining a pit bull. Like he's restraining a bulldog that just wants to come at them. And in this moment of gross disobedience, God lets loose and this bulldog goes for them. And it bites the living daylights out of Israel. Takes everything. And then what God does, he goes, he grabs the bulldog, brings it back, he punishes it for hitting his people. He punishes it for the evil inside it, and he punishes it for thinking that he's good, thinking that he's great. He punishes it. God. (laughs) When you look back in history, you'll realize that on the cross, God let all the bulldogs loose. He loosed all of them. Every single one, not even an ounce was left. All the bulldogs were released and all of them went to Christ. They, they, they ripped him to shreds. All, all, all pieces of evil are found on that cross and God says he, he poured out his anger, all of it. Poured it out on the cross. Poured it out because he had released all of the bulldogs of evil upon him. Put them on him. And on the cross, he, he lay on the cross being mindful that every single ounce of sin you and I ever committed, will ever commit, was not lying on him. God let loose on him. He, he, he did not have mercy on him. He let loose every single bulldog he had restrained for you and I. He let it loose on him. Right there on the cross. And he bears it and God punishes it on the cross forever. Punishes it. There is no evil that you're going through in your life that will not receive punishment. Every single thing that you're going through, whether it's on this earth or in the world to come, will be punished by the King of Kings because he is righteous. He is a righteous judge. He will punish all evil, all of it. The beautiful reality in the midst of evil is simply this. God is powerful, but he uses his power with wisdom. He uses his power with wisdom. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. You know that one? You know that Humpty Dumpty had a great fall? All the king's horses, all the king's men, Jono, they couldn't put Humpty together again. What is it with you and I that we always want to live elevated? We always want to live elevated above God, above his word, above his truth. Well, what is it with you and I that somehow we want to take the gamble of living elevated and blame God when we crash and everything breaks? What, what is it? When Humpty fell, he, he, you, he was, you weren't able to repair him. He, his breakdown was so devastating 
that when the king tried to use all of his resources, he couldn't find anything to put him back together again. This riddle is the epitome of our culture. It is the perfect and most accurate description of what we face on a day-to-day basis. The problem that Humpty Dumpty had was not that he sat elevated, not that he was broken. The problem is that he didn't have a good enough king. His king was incapable. He couldn't put him together again. Yet the God of the Bible presents to us a king who who does it. He can do it. He he not only can put you together again, but he can put the world together again. He creates the new heavens. He creates the new earth. He, he, He puts everything back together again. He's good enough. His resources are enough. They're enough for you. I want to end with the story. My last point is this. The undeniable mystery. The undeniable mystery of evil. Here is the undeniable mystery of evil. That as long as we are on this earth, we see limited. But when we see him, we shall be like him. And in eternity, we will understand all things. There are some things you are going through today. As painful as they are, you will never understand while you are on this earth. You need eternity to be able to look back and see, ah, that's what you did. Genesis 45 tells a story, and I'll close with this. Joseph is the last born of his father's kids. His father loves him, gives him his favorite coat, but his brothers are jealous of him. So jealous that they take him, they throw him into a pit. The pit wasn't enough. They decided that they are going to sell him to Egypt. And so they did. They busasad him. <clears throat> That's for another day. Sold him to Egypt. We have no idea any of the atrocities that he went through, but we do know in faithfulness to God, he started rising up again. And He starts leading so much that he's gained influence until Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him and he goes into prison. And here he is. He's stuck in prison. Every reason in the world to complain. He comes out of prison. He he rises up again until he's second in charge throughout the whole of Egypt, only second to Pharaoh. What his brothers did to him was evil. What his brothers did to him was terrible. But in Genesis 45, we see a moment between Joseph and his brothers. And here's what he says. He says, come near to me, please. And they come near to him. And he says, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold. You did the evil. You did it. You sold me to Egypt. (laughs) Now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me here. Verse 7, and, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Here's what he's saying. When you, when you view your evil from this side, you, you, you cannot understand what's going on. God has forgotten you. God has betrayed you. It is terrible. It is unbearable. It is, it is beyond conceivable what you're going through. But in light of eternity, 
when you view it from this side, what was evil, you begin to look underneath it and you find the grace of God hidden somewhere, somewhere beneath that which was evil. And all of a sudden in eternity, you turn your face and you praise him for the moment. Not because of the evil that happened to you, but because he was there with you all along. Because somehow when the evil was happening to you, he already signed the plan that would unfold even in this moment. He said, no, no, no. When I look back, it's not that you sold me that I'm looking at. It's because I'm looking at what he did. He sent me. When I look back in light of eternity, you, you don't even have to be distressed anymore because I can see. I see his face in that moment that actually he sent me. He sent me in that moment of my darkest hour he sent me. He's not excusing the evil. He's not, he's not rejoicing in the evil. He is rejoicing in the goodness that was hidden by the pain of evil. What am I saying? Am I saying to you that one day you look back on the day that you were raped and when you look back on that day in light of eternity, you, you, will, you will somehow see the face of God hidden and God plotting out your life, your plans, everything about you, even in that moment with the darkest thing. Am I saying to you that in that moment when you lost your child, somehow in eternity you will find God in his grace and his power and you will look in that moment and you will understand and not only will you understand, you will turn to God to say, Lord, thank you that you've always been with me. I thought you left me, but you've always been with me. When I look back, I see your face, I, I see your presence. And I'm enamored by your grace. I can't believe it, Lord, that what for me was a, the darkest hour on earth, for you, 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 you allowed your light to shine on it beyond the darkness. And now I can say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. You've never left me. You've kept me. You've kept me. God keeps you. He is with you. Whatever you're going through, he understands. Whatever, whatever trials you are facing, it is always important to face evil and trials with the end in mind. It is always important when it comes knocking at your door, first go to your room, take out the end and go, all right, God knows, God cares, God wins, let's deal with this. Come. He knows, he cares, and he wins at the end of the day. And we know that he cares because he sent his son in a fallen world, in a fallen body, and he experienced everything that you have experienced. Jesus knows what it feels like to be betrayed by family, to be betrayed by friends. He knows what it feels like to be falsely accused. He knows what it feels like to be exposed and humiliated and, ash and shamed for all the world to see. He knows what it feels like to be taken to a place where he doesn't want to go and be assaulted. He knows what it feels like to be beaten, bruised, hungry, homeless. He knows what it feels like. He's the only God in all of history who's able to say, when you go through what you're going through, I get it. I'm with you. I get it. And in so having the empathy, he's the only God who can give you the grace sufficient for the moment because he overcame it. He overcame it. I'm challenging you today. You and I need to repent. That's what we need to do. 
We don't need another cool service. We don't need another great song. What we need is to repent and let the fear of God change our lives and be so overwhelmed by His greatness, so overwhelmed by His goodness, so overwhelmed by His power that everything in our life changes because now we, we behold Him as He is, not as we want Him to be. Lord, help us. Help us. When we read this word, not, not, just a, not just pages on a book that we read on a Sunday, but we read this word every day, help us to see you the way you are. Because here is the reality of life, and please mark these words, I say them to you by the Spirit of God. It's either you will tremble before the Word of God, or you will tremble before the world. Two ways. Those who tremble before the Word will stand strong in the world. Those who don't tremble at the word, those who have no fear of God, will tremble before the world. You won't have a revelation to endure, to overcome, to rejoice. James 1 verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And when perseverance has had its work in you, it will make you mature and perfect in all things. You will be lacking nothing. What you need in your life is not more riches. What you need is perseverance through suffering. And then you will be lacking nothing. Lacking nothing. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, help us tonight beyond what any man can speak, beyond what any sermon can do. Lord, we want to come before you and repent this evening. Any ideas we've had of you that are not you. Oh Lord, it's so challenging at times to realize that your greatness can't completely be fathomed by our minds, but Lord, help us stretch our thinking, stretch our hearts, stretch our faith. grab every single heart, Lord. Don't let anyone leave this room without their heart having to wrestle with the reality of who you say you are. Lord, I thank you. I thank you. Oh, Lord, we can rejoice. We see your power. We see your power. We understand that we will be like you, Lord. We will see all things through your eyes, Lord. There will be no weeping. There will be only joy in your presence. So Lord, we thank you. In light of eternity, we thank you. Help us, Lord. Thank you. Lord, hallowed. Be your name, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day, Lord, our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. So we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For that is thy power, thy glory. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me bless his holy holy name sing bless the Lord
Give God a hand. Give Silver a hand. 